0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 28th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The internal culture of megabanks drove many of the decisions that led to the financial crisis. Edward Kane, a professor of finance at Boston College, argues that the implicit guarantee of a taxpayer-funded bailout needs to carry a price along with it. Until then, he argues, the structure of high finance in the United States will be doomed to repeated crises. What has been the culture of megabanks.
1: I believe the culture is one of profit maximization. But the unfortunate thing is that the profits do not include the subsidies or the profits do include the subsidies that they can extract from taxpayers by taking extreme and reckless risks. Uh, And then that feeds into the culture of regulators, which is to rescue them. And we're talking about the very biggest banks, the ones that have to be rescued, the ones that are called too big to fail. Trevor Burrus
0: So it has a lot to do with what the expectation within the bank is, given the kinds of risks that they're going to take, or that they they could be induced to accept.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I I liken it to reckless driving. That uh, if you see, sometimes driving here in the city especially, you will uh, see people weaving in and out of way. Uh, lanes at very high speed, and they're causing a lot of danger to other people. They're very confident that they will survive, but you know, at some point you see them, you pass by them and a couple blocks later, and they're in a crash. Uh, and in dr- traffic, we've set up a system of laws and points and punishments that uh, help to teach people not to drive that way.
0: And, and regulators, when they're engaged in their jobs, it's not necessarily clear that regulations that have been uh, put in place are going to have the result that regulators intend. So how have, in your uh, studies, how have regulations impacted the culture of these large financial institutions?
1: Well, I think it's a, it's a culture of, of predation, that they don't accept the idea that they should behave prudently if it's profitable to take some extreme risks, just like a teenager learning to drive, Uh, the thrill, actually, of taking the risks and and getting somewhere faster, beating all all your friends to, say, wherever uh, you're going, if you're going to the beach or something. And that uh, we reward people for accounting profits, which include these subsidies. So, the big banks, the quickest way to profits is to find ways to avoid the laws, to evade the laws in some cases, uh, invent new instruments that aren't covered by the regulations yet, and uh, take the notion that if it's legal, we can do it.
0: In the two books about uh, Enron, uh, the, the two, two big books, Conspiracy of Fools and the smartest guys in the room, there is uh, talk about one specific regulatory change, which was mark to market accounting that allowed them to book profits on deals that many of which never, never ultimately came to uh, fruition. What, what do we take what, what should regulators take from that experience with, with Enron, with Arthur Anderson that had its own scandal associated with Enron when it comes to understanding the culture that exists within megabanks?
1: Well, it's important to understand it's a culture that exists within accounting. That mark-to-market is a very sensible idea, but all of the accounting has enough loopholes that the accountants can make the clients happy. And what uh, we have in in regulation, especially as we're in crises, is a culture of deception, helping people to hide losses. I, I did a lot of studying of the S&L mess, and the regulators invented a new kind of accounting. They called regulatory accounting principles. And I called it crap uh, because the sea was just silent. And, and that uh, the, the whole idea was to help them hide losses, not recognize that the mortgages had been driven down in value that the SNL owned by the increase in interest rates and, and the inflation going on, in the, starting with the Vietnam War and continuing until um, Volker came in and broke the back of inflation eventually, but almost all the SNLs of this country were insolvent, and uh, they invented ways to invent, to pr- help them not to mark those assets down and uh, pass the, the guaranteed losses on to the taxpayer who made good. Uh, on all the deposits that these people raise.
0: All right. So taxpayers making good on promises is—is is that ultimately the problem when it comes to uh, financial institutions taking excessive risks? Is it—is that implicit guarantee? Is that ultimately the problem?
1: Well, it—it's the way in which the guarantee is exercised. You know, all guarantees uh, have two parts to them. The what we call the put, to be able to put the losses to the guarantor. But the guarantor has a stop-loss right, a right to take over the assets. And that's what is an exercise, the idea of of uh, rescuing all the creditors of an institution that is taking substantial risk. And many of the creditors know that they're taking these risks. And they're gambling right alongside the uh, the institutions or the managers of the institutions that uh, they'll be sa- that the institutions we save they'll be saved and they'll force taxpayers coerce taxpayers to pick up the bills.
0: What of this designation that has existed and still exists, uh, even under Dodd Frank, that there are some institutions that are too big to fail? It it's it seems almost like and i have had this discussion with several different folks it's almost like countries that have nuclear weapons and don't have nuclear weapons and when you observe the united states dealing with countries that don't have nuclear weapons the treatment is quite often very different it seems than really? when when we talk to countries that do have nuclear weapons so our financial institutions strongly encouraged to gain that designation somehow? Exactly.
1: That's what I was going to say. That If you look around and see that other countries are treated better because they have nuclear weapons, then that encourages you to get them. So, institutions want to be uh, difficult to fail, and it isn't really just like a light switch that you either on or off. But... The closer, the bigger you get, the more complicated you get, the more politically connected you get across the Congress. The harder it's going to be, and I would say rather than fail, but to to unwind, to to close and unwind. And so these institutions just uh, scare regulators, and regulators feel a duty to rescue them. And they understand that, and they reinforce the duty. If you read the books about this crisis, they're always talking about these meetings where everyone, all the institutions came the heads of institutions came down and scared Geithner and scared who uh, were before him Paulson and certainly scared <coughs> Ben Bernanke into thinking that if they didn't put up all this money from taxpayers, uh, things would would go completely bananas but in fact, it was the way they did it that I, I feel was, was wrong, ethically wrong, that the, the duties to taxpayers weren't really followed. This was just a massive rescue of everybody, people who, had, who knew the risks they were taking and, and were making money from having taken those risks. And now it was coming home, and they didn't want the losses, and they had the political power and the persuasive power to scare uh, the regulators and saying it, they had to be rescued, and they had to be rescued completely. If you read Geithner's book, I find it disgusting, the idea that we couldn't have any creditor take any losses, uh, that that's a terrible incentives for the future, and that's why I think we'll have another crisis before too long.
0: So, w- when you talk about uh, preventing creditors from taking losses, this is the standard process in almost every other kind of investment where you provide capital, you assess the quality of the institution that is going to be making use of that capital, and you assume the risk of that investment.
1: That's right. I, mean, I own a few stocks, and one of my firms re- reported uh, a big fall off in earnings, and it lost a third of its value last week. Well, that's fair. You know, I didn't know. I didn't... Uh, Say on top of it, I presume. If I'd really been studying that, I could have seen it and got out ahead of it. But you know, that's that's as you say, that's the rules of the game. It's it's. whatever sports you play, you have to expect some pain from that sport.
0: In terms of w- If we understand that regulations often don't have the intended result, if we understand that uh, there's a strong incentive by people who uh, work for either the Department of the Treasury or the Federal Reserve to uh, not look bad, uh, ultimately, when making a decision whether or not to let a firm fail on its own or get close to failure, how do you then credibly Reorient these uh, subcultures within banks that uh, are have have taken these enormous risks.
1: Well, we we have to change the responsibility of everybody involved and i think we have we actually need to change training programs in regulators uh, to get across the fact that they're going to face these enormous political pressures that crises will develop and they've got to understand they have a duty to taxpayers but most importantly we have to go in and recognize that taxpayers are disadvantaged minority investors in any bank that's too big to fail and that their position needs to be measured and uh, needs to be protected by the law. so that uh, there has to be a duty from the manager, say of chase, to taxpayers to pay them a dividend on the value of their guarantee uh, quarter by quarter. And
0: So balancing essentially the, the put option that's right. with uh, some sort of cash benefit for what are quote unquote, Guarantors the the taxpayers.
1: Yes, we seem to believe in the price system, but not here. You see, <laughs> and think of a taxpayer's position. They can't, as compared to ordinary stock in say Chase, the the taxpayer cannot sell his position, He's stuck with it. Uh, that the the losses are unlimited, but the gains are because if the firm's doing very well. Then, then uh, there is the benefit is only of getting out of from underwater, and the guarantee. Once that happens, that's pretty much the top of what you can get. And, and then they can make things very much worse for you by delaying uh, the recognition of losses, by putting off uh, regulatory adjustments that would rebuild their capital. So, it's a very disadvantaged position.
0: So, in some sense, this is uh, what you're suggesting then is to assign a price to the option of yeah. putting losses onto taxpayers, but that's just really an insurance policy, no, right? No,
1: no. Oh, no. No? No, that's very important that I think part of what keeps the too-big-to-fail alive is mischaracterizing the nature of the bailout. What kind of insurance policy, what kind of insurance company would give coverage to money market mutual funds? When they're insolvent, when they needed, they didn't pay anything for the insurance before they got it. It was given to them. They paid a little bit during that period. Then it's... They were oh, so this so, is
0: an after-the-fact payment rather than uh, a...
1: Uh, well, no, I'm saying what we have, we call that bail, bailout is somehow some implicit insurance. It's not implicit insurance. It's implicit loss-absorbing equity. Okay. And it's certainly not a loan. You see, it, what I'm saying is that these guarantees, to treat them as a form of insurance is to confuse the way people think about it. Because in insurance law, we recognize the concept of moral hazard. You insure people and then you as an insurance company are supposed to control the losses. Well, the trouble with finance is that people can have a million ways to, to take losses. That, and so you've got to make them responsible to taxpayers to actually bring incentives under control. Because if you just put some more incentives, like a little bit ha- higher capital requirements, some new liquidity requirements, requirements to take stress tests, all of these things still leave in place that you have the right to, uh, to do your activity in such a way that it walks around the laws. What Burrus, the laws.
0: What's so bad about standard bankruptcy court for even these very large institutions?
1: Well, uh, there are a lot of us that say that it, that something like the bankruptcy process is way better than not feeling them at all. But it still is the question that in a crisis, once you get in cri- a crisis, the, the culture of, of rescue is so strong in, in the uh, – Financial regulatory sector—that that's what you're going to get. But we notice that we don't punish any individuals for taking these risk, the reckless risks. We there has been, as far as I know, no top banking executive go to jail. Uh, most of the fines go to the company, which means the stockholders who weren't in position to see the losses because they were being hidden by this kind of accounting you talked about at the beginning. So we have to put respon- new responsibilities on uh, on the executives. Now, British law has started to move in that direction, but just backed off last week. And it's, it's very disappointing, but at least they saw that this would be very helpful, that people that— Uh, They had a law that said that if you were in a position to uh, take a risk that was ruinous, you took that risk, and uh, you knowingly took that risk, knowing that it could render the the insolvent and that the standards with which you evaluated all this were way below what should be the standards in banking. That's going to be where it would be hard to prosecute. But even that that was characterized as reversing the burden of proof, and the, the new British government uh, changed it, uh, said that they were they were going to go back just to treat regulatory breaches. And I'm saying that's the whole problem. They say, if we write a regulation and you breach it, we can punish you, or punish your bank. But if you find a way around that regulation, so you're not really breaching it, well, that's okay, you know?
0: How different is this from Badgett's rule? That, that is, I mean, the idea that you have this uh, collateral—that's good collateral. I mean, we never really established that in the financial crisis. But, but how how different is what you're suggesting from Badgett's rule?
1: Well, Badgett's rule is is a rule about when you rescue and when you don't. What I'm saying is that as long as we have incentives in the industry, it says it's okay to steal money from taxpayers. As long as you don't break the law, okay. and we're going to the law is not going to be actually passed in a in a way creating responsibility. It's just going to say, here's rule one, here's rule two, here's rule three, here's rule four, and if you can b- manage to break the spirit of that law without breaking the letter of the law, you're home free. And that's what it's that's unacceptable. You know, if we if uh, somebody invented a new way of robbing people on the street and somehow walk through the laws uh, we would still feel that they should be punished for that and we would immediately change the laws but here the 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 nice thing is that the street robbers don't have a lobbying uh, force whereas these very big banks have extremely strong lobbying force and give lots of money to politicians that lead them to be sympathetic to their problems when they get into trouble.
0: Edward Kane is a professor of finance at Boston College. Download the new Cato Audio app for your iOS device and get access to all six Cato Institute podcasts. Learn more at cato.org.